uh, Rafael Garcia back again on June 8th, 2017. And we are back for another edition of the MMA Ratings Podcast. So first, I want to say thank you, Schwan, for joining me again. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. Thank you for having me. So we, I want to go ahead and jump right in on things. Hold on one second. Give me a second, quick second. Something sounds a little bit off. Um, so I hear a slight echo. So yeah, I wanted to um, jump right into the show and say, you know, we got a lot. We've got quite a bit to talk about today. Um, have you been following the news this week, Sean? Uh, yeah, it seems like a lot of stuff's been going on. Uh, I would hate to be uh, Demetrius Johnson right about now. <laughs> That he's got a lot of stuff he's got to consider right now. Yeah, his week has been quite interesting to say the least. Um, it's been, whew, it's been a mess to watch, but I've definitely enjoyed it. We're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about the fights we got um, coming up this weekend. But I want to start off a little differently this time. I want to go into the news first, and obviously, I want to start with DJ any whole situation with him and the UFC and the, the the potential fight that the two sides are having. You know, obviously people know who are aware of the situation that we have. Demetrius Johnson on one side saying that he is being bullied, for lack of a better term, into fighting um, TJ Dillashaw because, you know, uh, um, TJ's dance partner Cody Garbrandt has been forced off of their upcoming card because of his back injury. So you see had the idea of pairing DJ with TJ for a um, what they called a super fight for the flyweight title. Now Demetrius went on the MMA hour this week and basically laid it all out there. He was saying that the that the UFC was not the most um worthy of working with in a situation where they basically went as far as to threaten to fold the flyweight division if he did not take the fight. And Demetrius's stance is basically like, look, you know, I want what's coming to me. I want what's due to, due to me. And this is a situation out of respect where he feels like he wasn't paid um, the most respect. And, and this is an interesting situation because when you look at a lot of the different issues that fighters are having with the UFC right now, it seems like a lot of it is around the situation of respect. But, um, Shawan, as you watched this, watch this story unfold, what were some of your initial thoughts? Well, my, my initial thoughts, I was always on the side of DJ, to be honest. When everybody was saying he should move, he should let a TJ come down and take the fight. I my my argument was always that TJ is not, he's not he's not in that weight class. We don't know if he can actually make that weight to compete, for one. And there's other contenders, whether you think they're valuable or they're good fights or they have a chance of winning. The fact of the matter is, Demetrius Johnson has other contenders who have been winning fights in that division, who who should be put ahead of TJ just because TJ was great at one weight doesn't mean he gets to jump the line at another weight. And um, I don't know why they keep referring to this as a super fight. TJ Dillashaw doesn't have a title. Um, he's, he wasn't robbed. He's not some dominating, outstanding fighter of that kind of level. It's not really a super fight. All it is is a really, really good fight. A super fight might be Cody versus DJ because he's a champion and he beat 
uh, Dominic Cruz, who had nobody had been able to beat in the past several years, or even DJ versus Dominic Cruz. That might be a super fight because of Dominic Cruz is standing and him only losing to Cody Garbron. But I don't see how TJ Dillashaw is a super fight, and I don't really see what it does for Mighty Mouse outside of you know, maybe appeasing some hardcore fans. It doesn't make him that kind of money. TJ Dillashaw is not a draw. He's not the kind of guy who draws big fans. He's not a big number type of guy. So I don't, I don't see the point. I don't see any benefit for Demetrius Johnson. It makes sense for TJ. TJ's got nothing to do. But for Demetrius, why would he even take the fight? It doesn't make any sense to me financially, from a business point of view, even from a fighting point of view. It makes no sense to me. I don't understand why they'd even expect him to take the fight. It just doesn't make any sense. So I don't disagree with you there. Um, there's a lot of th- there's a lot of different components to this. One of the most interesting things that DJ said during his conversation with Ariel on Monday is that the UFC kept pushing this because I quote, "This is what TJ wants." And Demetrius's response to that was like, "I don't give a fuck," which is exactly the stance that he should take. Not only is TJ not a champion, but Demetrius is the longest reigning. UFC champion that they have right now with 10 title defenses and he's on the cusp of breaking a record which is something that he's been talking about doing for years so you mean to tell me that the UFC is willing to put another fighter's um, desires and goals and benefits ahead of another fighter who's kind of been who's been a model citizen for lack of a better terms since winning the, um, the, 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 the title he's never turned down a fight He's never missed weight. He's never failed a drug test. He's never gotten trouble outside of the, outside of the cage. You won't see this guy. Shoot, no, I won't say shooting up a club, but you won't see this guy getting getting in the fights outside of bars and stuff like that. There's so many different situations where Demetrius Johnson has shown that he is a model citizen, for lack of a better term, and yet UFC is willing to pressure him in a way that just is is unsettling. And I get what they're trying to do. They need big fights and they need them now, but they want. I, I think the idea of trying to pressure guys into doing stuff like this isn't going to work anymore. This isn't the this isn't the days of Chuck Liddell, Matt Hughes, where they can just pressure you and and expect you expect you to jump. Those days are long gone. And I'm I'm glad that, that Mighty Mouse is finally standing up. Remember when when Tyrone Woodley said that he was the subject of prejudice because Stephen Thompson was getting a title fight again. I would say that Demetrius Johnson would have a better argument than Tyron Woodley just because because Stephen Thompson had been on a winning streak. He had finished top contenders. He looked impressive. He lost a disputed decision to Tyron Woodley. So that kind of made sense why he got that rematch. Nobody has given me an actual reason why TJ Dillashaw should be getting a title fight at a division lower than him. I know he's won two in a row, but in one fight, he didn't look great. And then the other, and then the other one, he fought a guy who who just had really no sort of skill set for him. I don't understand. I don't understand why they're trying to look out for T.J. Dillashaw. He's not a draw. He's not a guy who's even a pound for pound type fighter. I have no idea why they keep why they're so insistent on trying to give him an opportunity that he a hasn't earned and b he doesn't come with enough financial reward for it to make it worth worth Demetrius' time. Like if he was going to get him some kind of, you know, make, make him Anderson Silva money or make him some Ronda Rousey money or Conor McGregor money, I, I'd be like, well, you know, I'd still agree with DJ, but I'd be like, man, you need to go get that money. 
but he doesn't make him any money. He's just another. He, as far as as far as sales and ratings, T.J. Dillashaw is just another guy. He doesn't pull in ratings. He doesn't. He doesn't pull in anybody. So it doesn't make sense why they're trying to force this fight and call it a super fight. I, I have no idea why they're on T.J.'s side in the first place. And as far as the UFC, every combat sport, combat sports, and and you cover real sports too. Excuse me, stick and ball, traditional sports. That's what owners do. Whether it's owners or promoters, that's what they try to do. Uh, will you take a? Uh, will you you know renegotiate your contract so we can get certain guys in because we need these guys so we can compete? Will you take a little? Will you take a bit of a hometown discount so we can get these guys so we can compete for a title? And they do it in boxing. They do it all over. It happens in every single sport at every single level. People try to to, to pressure people with public opinion and with pressure from the organization that you're not going to get what you want, you're not going to get your respect, you're going to have to go find a job somewhere else if you don't capitulate to what we're doing. So this isn't anything new. The only thing new about it in the case of the UFC is most people who complain are guys who don't have championships or guys who are on losing streaks, guys who don't really have a foot to stand on. They seem like bitter guys because they haven't done anything or they're not able to have success anymore. That's when guys usually start talking. DJ's at the top of his game. He's number one pound for pound and he's talking that's a, that's a surprising thing you don't usually get guys in his position talking this much you know aldo didn't talk this much anderson silva didn't talk this much so he stopped he stopped getting his way and he started losing you rarely see guys at the top of their game george st pierre included winning 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 and talking about unfair practices or trying to be bullied i think conor mcgregor made some comments towards it but for the most part, DJ is the first champion who's actually come out and said, the UFC is trying to get me to do this, and I'm not having it. And he's not going to let them try to dictate to him or bully him or intimidate him. And that's the first I've heard of any guy who's on a winning streak, who has something to lose, who has a bit of a legacy, actually speaking out. That's a surprising thing. Tons of guys complain behind the scenes or, when, or publicly when things are going bad. How many guys actually complain when they're at the, t- the height of their powers, when they're winning multiple fights, when they're on pound-for-pound lists? That's that's the strange thing about all this. And you know, in my opinion, I think that that is the time to start complaining. And I, compl- I, I hate to use the term complaining, but that's the time when you need to be most vocal. When you not only when you had the most to lose, but when you had the most to gain as well. To be honest with you, man, this is probably the most coverage that Demetrius Johnson has gotten since he's won the title. Period. Yes. Yeah. And when you look at that, that tells you how. Uh, not unfair, but that tells you how much of a situation he was in. This guy was not only winning and defending a title, but he was doing it in a way that was more and more impressive with each stance. This guy just submitted Wilson Hayes, a guy who had never been submitted in his life, finished him. He finished an Olympic champion. He finished Kyoji Horiguchi. He finished John Moraga. He finished Joseph Benavidez. Like, man, this guy has been getting better and better every time he stepped into the octagon, and his stature has diminished more and more at, at the same time. And I think that this is the right time for him to be to draw a line in the sand. This is what I want. This is what I've done. My resume speaks enough for me, speaks enough for itself. And the UFC's response to this has been interesting because instead of saying okay you know what we're gonna we're gonna take this moment and try to build around it maybe build this into a moment where not only where tj and dj give each other the rub and they both become bigger names off of this no we're just gonna blow the whole thing up and say f this we're gonna take your title fold your um division and just make it more difficult for you like that is amazing to me how um quickly this 
this uh, denigrated down in, into a bad situation. Well, I mean, this is that's what they do. I mean, you have to you have to put something on the line to make a guy back off of where he stands. We're gonna give you tough. You know, they've done that to other fighters. They gave them tougher fights than they're supposed to. They won't let them fight. They when Randy Couture tried to leave, they held him to this contract, even though they didn't really value Randy. They do whatever they can to put you in a position where you have to fold. The only thing is about Demetrius Johnson is he doesn't have to. He's a good enough fighter where he can still compete at a world-class level, at a weight class above, regardless of who they put up against him. He's good enough to compete at 35 and a world-class level. He doesn't really need the division. The division, nobody in the division has become any bigger of a star than Demetrius Johnson. Nobody in the division has broken out and gotten a lot of ratings and got a lot of opportunities and built a huge fan base. So losing the division doesn't really hurt him that much. If you really think about it, it doesn't really cost him any money. DJ set up his own things on his own. So the UFC not backing him isn't anything new because they never really backed him. They never really pushed him. And I'm not saying he would be a huge star, but they could have maximized the appeal he has. It max it, He's already done. They haven't done that. So to him, he probably feels like he's been fighting the UFC for the large majority of his career. They didn't even want him to win the championship. If you remember, this was supposed to be Benavides's division. He was supposed to win this this tournament when they first had it. Benavides, everybody said if Benavides was at a weight class below, he'd be the champion. He was supposed to win the he was supposed to win the belt. He was supposed to be the guy right now. It just so happened that he wasn't he wasn't able to win a tournament and he wasn't able to win the rematch. But and them closing down the division does nothing to him. They didn't push it. They haven't made him a star. They haven't made him millions upon millions of dollars. Essentially all the money he's made since he's not a draw and they they haven't created a fan base for him. All the money he's made has been based off of his ability to perform increasingly better against an increasingly diverse and difficult level of opposition. That, that's what's made him his money. They ha he's gotten bonuses that he's earned because he's finished, bonuses he's earned because he's put on great fights, and he's continued to win fight after fight after fight after fight on his own. The UFC, the UFC really doesn't build stars. They give people a platform to work on. They don't really know how to build stars. If they did... They'd be trying to build a lot of them so they can make up money. They don't know how to build stars. And the worst part about it is they don't even know how to maximize the attention and the opportunities that guys who have a fan base have. have. So they haven't done anything for Demetrius. So what, what kind of threat is that? I'm going to close down a division. Well, I'm the only champion the division's ever had. I'm the most dominant fighter in the division's history. And all I'm saying is I don't want to have a guy who drops down a weight class come immediately challenge for my title. It doesn't make him look bad at all. And if they cut him, there's tons of organizations that will sign him right now for big money because of where he stands and his quality as a fighter. So I don't know what kind of threat it is that will close down the division. They don't pay him enough where it, where it changes his life all that often. He'll just move up in the division and fight whoever they put in front of him, same as he's been doing for the past three, four years in the flyweight division. So oh, you said a couple of different things there um, that were pretty interesting to me. You said that the UFC can't build stars, which is which is true. They have been struggling to build certain stars. I do also believe that a part of it is that the organization has an archetype that they like to like, like that they like to promote. Sage Northcutt, Mickey Gall, um, Paige Van Zant, Ronda Rousey, uh, Luke Rockhold. Um, Elias Theodoro, these are the type of men and women that fit that archetype that they like to push. Unless if you have some type of over overbearing personality trait or knockout power, like a Derek Lewis and Mark Hunt, those guys don't fit that mold, but they have that knockout power that can put guys away. Um, 
Anthony Johnson had that as well. You know, GSP had the had the looks. Bisbing has the mouth. He had the looks for a little while, but he doesn't have those as well. But you know, it's it's they are they do have certain types of archetypes that they like to push to the forefront. But when it comes to those hard nose, nothing overly special about them, but they get out there and work day in and day out. Um, but they still manage to get over. They and then and the USC struggles to translate those individuals into in, into stars, and it's also partly it's also partly the athlete as well. But it, it plays it both ways. Like Demetrius Johnson has done his own thing. You know, he's built up his empire in video games, which is something that it, it perplexes me that the UFC didn't better leverage that because that's kind of the same demographic there they can get younger um fans and newer fans this kind of runs into that new report that came out today that said that the ufc's median viewer age is in the 40s like think about like now that that's pretty amazing to me um the sports business journal revealed that the us that the median age of ufc ufc watcher is 49 years old um that makes sense to me yeah and, and, and it's pretty it's it's Pretty, pretty interesting to me. Um, I haven't read the full report yet, but um, that's something I, I, I want to look into. Well, about, but, about, the, about Demetrius, it, it's a twofold thing. First of all, some of it does fall on the athlete because so many athletes, and Andre Ward, he's a boxer, he does the same thing. He goes, I'm not going to talk trash. I'm not going to go rah, rah, rah. I'm not going to demand a title shot, beg for a title shot. They say there's certain things they're not going to do to sell. So part of it is on them, no matter how they spin it. I understand your morals. I understand your blah, 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 your ground. This is how I present myself. I got to look my kids in the eye. Fine. That is a choice you're making to not try to maximize your earnings by being true to yourself. Good moral stand, good lesson for the kids might not be good for your bottom line. You're choosing not to do things that have been shown to work. That's a choice. Just like if, you, if I say, Raphael, I'll pay you $100,000 a year to work on this show, but it's going to kind of be a little bit denigrating to your race and to you as a man. Now, is that a, the best deal for you possibly? No. But you're saying if you want to, if a guy chooses to do that and makes $100,000, you can't hate on him. You took a moral stand that says, I don't want to do that. That's your choice. That's the choice. Nobody made you make that choice. You made the choice because you felt your morals and the lesson you're, the example you're setting is more important than making money. Fine. Don't complain about the money if you don't want to take every avenue to make money. That's, that's, first, that's the first part. The second part of it is the UFC is not, it's not so much about an archetype. The UFC wants easy, wants easy bake stars. They want people who come in with a fan base, people who it's easy to push. It's easy to push Luke, push Luke Rockhold. He's athletic. He's cut. He's a good-looking dude. Conor McGregor already came in with a demographic. He came in with like a whole country behind him. Easy to push that kind of guy. Derek Lewis is over the top. He plays up the kind of goofy, loud mouth, you know, shoot from the hip, wild card fighter. It's easy to push that kind of guy because you don't know what he's going to say. You don't know how he's going to act. It's easy to put that kind of guy in a position to succeed. Um, Ronda Rousey, she's, the most, she's one of the most dominant female athletes, and she kind of tiptoes on that edge between being edgy and good and classy and being trashy, however you want to put it. It's easy to push her. They want people who it's easy. They want people with built-in demographics. That's why they started pushing Cynthia Cavillo. That's why they tried to push Cain Velasquez. They thought they could appeal to that Mexican demographic. They want easy big stars. They don't want to have to look into different avenues to maximize what a fighter could be 
And the fact of the matter is not every fighter can be a star, but every fighter's fan base and everybody, every fighter's social media presence can be maximized. The UFC just doesn't want to do the work. If, you're not, if there's not a clear line to success or appeal for you, they're not, they're not interested. All the guys they've, they've tried to push, if you think about it, there's a clear line to success. Paige Van Zandt, young, nice body, what people call attractive, kind of has a personality that doesn't grate on anybody. Easy to push that. There's a clear demographic to push that to. Sage Northcutt, clear no- demographic. Conor McGregor, clear de- demographic. With DJ, there's a demographic, but it's not quite as clear. It's not one they understand as well. And it's one that's not guaranteed to make them millions upon millions upon millions. They're looking for easy big breakout stars i don't believe dj is that kind of guy i believe he could be a star i don't know that he could be a superstar i'm pretty sure he can't be a transcendent one i mean they could try but i don't think he's going to give them that kind of return on their investment he'll give them a lot but he won't give them the return that a conor mcgregor will or that a cynthia cavillo could if she could ever if they could ever get that mexican latin american fan base to jump on the MMA bandwagon. So I think it's twofold. And I've always said that. Guys like Uriah Faber, he wasn't a superstar, but he was a very big star because he took every opportunity to push himself. He was on the Ultimate Fighter how many times? He made guest appearances on the Ultimate Fighter how many times? Uriah Faber, you put a microphone in front of his face, he will never turn it away. If I called him right now to be on the show next week, he'd probably just do it because he'll do anything to expand his brand, expand his presence. DJ has on multiple occasions said, I'm not doing tough because I would teach my secrets and I need to be able to fully invest in it. I need to focus on my own career. Conor McGregor didn't focus on his career. He focused on creating, creating interest, drawing in fans, talking trash on top of training. Same thing with Ronda. She did the same thing on top of training. Some people are more focused on the meat and potatoes aspect. Some people are focused on the meat and potatoes and the flashier aspects. Those people tend to make bigger gains as far as appealing to people, having a bigger star, having a bigger social media presence, and having getting bigger paychecks. But they make it they make a they make a trade off. They're essentially trading off training time and sharpening their skills to sharpen their brand and expand their appeal and crossover ability. Demetrius Johnson has repeatedly said he ain't doing that. So that's kind of on him. He can talk about the he could talk about the UFC not pushing him, but if Demetrius Johnson had a big enough demographic it would show even without the UFC pushing him. Conor McGregor was already popular before he set a foot in the UFC. Ronda Rousey was already popular before she put her foot down in the UFC. Misha Tate already had a huge fan base. Your eye favorite had a huge fan base. DJ's never had one. He's he's just never had one. Yeah, and there's definitely that that plays a huge part in it too. That um, you know, I definitely do believe that the athletes try to put too much on the UFC and put too much of the blame there. With hey, you guys should have made me into the champ. Or you should you guys should have pushed me into a champion. So there is there is part of it where that's not a um, it's not the full story. So I can agree with you on on oh, that. Yeah. So one more one more point, Rafael. One more point. You know, everybody says DJ's the best, so he should get paid like it. He should be a huge star. In the NFL, yep. we'll, we'll make it simple. Tom Brady's been better than, than Peyton Manning for years. Peyton Manning was the biggest star in the NFL. And sometimes he wasn't even getting past the first round of the playoffs. Michael Jordan was the best NBA. Lots of guys got paid more than him and got bigger pushes at, at points in his career. It's not being the best. Being the best does not make you a star. Canelo was not the best. He was the big star. You know, Miguel Cotto right now is not the best. He's still a bigger star than most guys in his weight division. It's kind of a little bit on you, and it's kind of a little bit on 
luck and the demographic you appeal to. It's not just being the very best. The very best does not guarantee you anything except being the very best. So what do you think is the outcome of this situation? Do you think we end up finding ourselves in a situation where um, DJ does fight TJ or does he end up fighting Ray Borg or does, does he not fight either and we end up seeing him no longer on the USC payroll? I, had, I actually had an idea. I said, why don't they do this? He wants, he wants TJ to fight a featherweight fight before he fights him. He's not going to fight until then. TJ doesn't want to fight featherweight unless it's for a world title. Why don't you have TJ and Borg or TJ and somebody else? I mean, if you want to be, I mean, right, ne- right now being an authentic sport isn't important, so we're just going to focus on a solution. Have TJ and Borg or TJ and Pettis fight for an interim championship. Whoever wins is the next challenger for DJ. That way, DJ's next, his record-breaking fight is champion versus champion, which makes it bigger. And if TJ happens to win it, it's even better because now you've had all this ill will build up. You've seen TJ perform at, at flyweight and win, and it's champion versus champion. And now TJ's a two-division champion. Even though it's interim, he'd be a two-division champion against the most dominant champion in the weight class. That might be big. That would sell with all the trash talk and everything else behind it. And then, you know, of course, you'd have Team Alpha Male saying, look, now you're seeing the real TJ. He's a fake. He's a phony. This is what we told you for years. That you could spin and sell, and then it, it would meet all the t- it would meet all the DJ's requirements because TJ would have taken a flyweight fight. It would be, he'd be fighting his record-breaking fight against a guy who's a fellow champion, and he begin and we know that TJ could make the weight because he just made it to win the interim title belt. So that's that's actually a good idea, and it's funny because um Henry 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 Cejudo threw his name into the pot as someone that would be willing to fight um fight TJ if if he didn't get the fight with uh. Demetrius Johnson. So yeah, I'm not mad at you for that idea. You know, I think it would be interesting to see if flyweight, if he can make flyweight, and what he looks like at that uh, weight class. Yeah. And side note, as I said this before, this is bad for TJ. He was getting a lot of goodwill for the Ultimate Fighter, but remember when when Faber said he's two faced and he'll be cool with you one minute, and then he'll start talking trash. He'll say, "I don't believe in talking trash," but then he'll talk trash. How he's got a bad temper. He he reacts to adversity very well, very poorly. Well, look, he had some mm-hmm. adversity. DJ said he didn't win the fight. Now TJ's saying he's a coward. Now, now Mighty Mouse is, is Minnie Mouse. The same guy he was cool with two years ago and said he respected and had a world of respect for. Now he's saying he's a coward and he's running from him. So, and, and maybe TJ's just doing that for show. But just a year ago when he fought Dominic Cruz, he said, I don't like that when you trash talk for no reason. There's no reason to sell the fight. You just fight the fight. So either he's a fake, fake personality who turned on somebody he respects or... He, and he never respected DJ, or he's a fake, and he's doing what he said he doesn't believe in, which is trying to sell a fight by talking trash in the media. Either way, TJ Dillashaw, every time he opens his mouth, is exposing himself as somewhat of a shifty character and a guy with, with bad judgment, really bad judgment in, in, in intense situations. This is, this is going bad for him. It's making him look, look really bad, in my opinion. I can agree. I, I can agree with you there on that. And, um, so I want to kind of segue into a, another story because you mentioned this guy a couple of minutes back, um, which you talked about Conor McGregor money. Did you see that he is sitting pretty right now as the 24th highest paid athlete in 2016? Well, in the last 12 months, Forbes just had him on his, on the list um, of the top 100 athletes and he came in at number 24. Yeah, I was pretty impressed with that. I'm, I'm impressed because he really actually earned it, not just through fighting, but through endless promotion and constantly pushing himself in the boundaries and exploring avenues to get to that point. Like, 
everybody's going to say the UFC paved the way for him. They didn't really. He, he kind of created these opportunities for himself. He, he went for big game. He talked a lot of noise. He backed it up. And he took every opportunity to showcase himself and showcase his brand and separate himself so that he could make the money he wanted to make. He didn't depend on the UFC to push him. When the UFC was against him, he was still making moves. So I'm very impressed with Conor McGregor. And not, not even with the trash talk. With the foresight and the dedication to the process and the finding ways and finding avenues to earn money and establish himself. That's the biggest part that everybody could take from him. Everybody's gonna, they focus on the trash talk, but they don't, they don't look at the mindset. They don't look at the business acumen. They don't look at the, the, the chances he's taking and the creativity he's creating, he, the creativity he's shown in how to make money and how to establish himself as a, a person who can generate money, not just a person who, who can make money as a, as a middleman between the consumer and the organization. Like that's what people need to focus on. They're focused on the wrong thing. They're not focused on the business acumen. Yeah, I can definitely get you um, get with you on that. And then he's uh, they broke down his salary to of uh, thirty four million dollars. I think it was twenty. What was it? Twenty. Uh, twenty some odd. Twenty four. Twenty five came from fight purses, and then seven million came from endorsements. So it was definitely broken down. And he was actually ahead of Canelo Triple um, Canelo Alvarez, who was number. 43 on the rankings and then Vladimir uh, Klitschko was number 98 and he was so he was the highest ranked combat sports athlete um, on the uh, listing Yeah, I can see that. I mean Canelo still has a Canelo is biggest star as he is in Mexico He hasn't broken through the US because he can't he can't speak English or he chooses not to So there's a, somewhat of a limit to the to the potential he could have or the money he can make He can only make money in, in one area no matter how how popular he is that not being able to speak English, I think, has held him back. I mean, not not a huge amount because he's still one of the top paid athletes. Um, Klitschko, you know, considering he's not really a popular fighter, I'm actually really impressed by that because he people did, just started appreciating him with that last fight. Before that, people were saying he's boring and lame. So I'm actually impressed by the fact that he's that high up as far as and as far as a guy is earning. And he only fought once in the past 12 months, or was it twice? Twice. Yeah, he fought That's twice. That's pretty impressive, actually. Yeah, he... That's pretty um, impressive that he only fought twice. Well, I mean, it's funny that you said that because, you know, Floyd Mayweather used to own these rankings. He he was on top of it in 2012, 2014, and 2015. I think it was a 2012 year where he was the highest paid athlete and he actually didn't compete. Think yeah. about that. You're the highest paid athlete and you don't even go to work one day at, one day out of the whole 12 months. Yeah, I mean, that, that's what happened. I mean, not everybody can be, it's like the same thing in real life. Not everybody can be rich. Not everybody's going to have the biggest house. But if you play your cards right and you really maximize the opportunities and do the right things with your money, you can still make money. You can live much better than you are. You can maximize everything you have. A lot of people are too focused on the fact that they're not a superstar. They're not super rich instead of maximizing the opportunities and the money they get. And that's why they keep on hitting these brick walls. There's a certain kind of sacrifice and a certain kind of effort you have to put in to separate yourself. And I know every, it's, every fighter thinks they're doing this, just like every person in the world thinks they're working hard. Oh, I'm a hard worker. I don't know why I don't have these things. You, you might think you're working hard, but you, you're probably not working as hard as you think you are. And that, that goes for fighters as far as in doing things with it. You know, I mean, certain people make certain decisions, other people make other decisions, and you live with the decisions you make. And um, Connor's clearly made excellent decisions. 
Floyd Mayweather has made some wonderful decisions. You know, I mean, I was thinking about that. All the money um, Conor made, uh, Floyd makes him like one night for a fight. You know, that's like it's, on the low end of a fight for him. That's that's the amazing thing. Basically, um, and so talking about you know uh, fight nights and getting into the cage, we got an interesting card this weekend in New Zealand. Um, there's a couple of different things I want to talk about from UFC Fight Night 110, but as always, you know, we got to start with the main event where we have Derek Lewis and Mark Hunt. And I don't think there's really too much to say about this. These two guys are going to walk into the center of the cage and they're just going to start throwing haymakers. Um, I think that Hunt definitely has the technique on his side, and I was listening to a debate earlier today about which guy has a, has the more power, and most people lean towards Mark Hunt, but I don't care how you shape this fight. Someone's going to sleep. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty much simple. It's, there's not a whole lot of technique. Mark Hunt is that probably the more technical striker, but he's been getting kind of lazy, it seems, and sloppy, it seems, on his defense and his offense. And uh, a lot of his success, even with his technique, was based on the ability of, A, he can knock you out, and B, he can take knockout shots he doesn't seem to be any longer able to take those knockout shots anymore. So a lot of the, the, the counters and a lot of the footwork and pressure he would put on guys, they don't exist because he can't take the shots anymore. He has to be a little bit more cautious. And a cautious Mark Hunt isn't really an effective one because he's never been that kind of slick, defensively sound kind of guy. So the only really chance he has is to go out there and just try to be educated, but just basically force exchanges with Lewis. I think he is the bigger hitter. Lewis reacted to um, Brown kind of putting the lumber to him. I, I have my concerns, but the fact of the matter is um, Lewis is still the younger guy. He's at this stage the better athlete. He's probably got the better athleticism overall. So it, it'd be hard. It'd be hard to go against him. But he's he's in every fight he's been in. He's looked vulnerable. He looked vulnerable against Roy Nelson. He looked vulnerable against against Travis Brown. I mean, Brown really had him beat until he just for some reason stopped doing what was working. So um I mean it's just gonna be, it should be a short fight. If if it goes two rounds, I'll be shocked. Um I don't think Mark Hunt has the chin to to take Lewis's power for two or three rounds straight. And um I'm pretty sure that if, if Mark Hunt is throwing heat, I, I I know Derek Lewis can't take it. Derek Lewis has got a decent chin, but you have to remember um he did get stopped with one shot by Matt Mitrion. And Mitrion doesn't generate half the power that Hunt does when Hunt's committing to shots and throwing his and throwing his shots. I mean I forgot all about that Mitrion fight. Um you know and you know the MMA luck. You know what's gonna happen, right? <laughs> what Hunt's gonna knock him out? Nope, this is gonna be a five round fight. Oh, watch. God. Watch, it, watch. It, this is gonna be a five round fight. I mean, there have been a couple of good five round the the, the uh what was it Bigfoot and um Mark Hunt fight? The, the, the Bigfoot and Mark Hunt fight, the first one, was an amazing fight. I remember watching that and losing my shit as these two guys, you know, were given given their all and people were like standing on like that was probably one of the most best fights that year. Easy. Um it's unfortunate that Silva ended up popping. Um and then you just fuck the whole thing up, but that was definitely one of the one of the most exciting fights of that year, and still probably my favorite heavyweight fight. Yeah, unfortunately, Hunt doesn't have that chin anymore, and Derek Lewis has never had it. it. I mean, it could go five. 
I just I just don't see how it does because neither one of them can take a tremendous shot anymore. I, I mean, Hunt can't. He's been stopped in quite a few fights recently, and Derrick Lewis, his chin has never impressed me. His chin hasn't. His, his ability to take shots to the body has been exposed a little bit. I mean, you don't fix that in two or three months or six months. That doesn't just go away when you can't take body shots. And like I said, I mean, a guy who doesn't hit half as hard as Hunt put him on his ass with one shot, the first shot he hit him with. So, I mean, I, I don't see how I don't see how it gets past three. It could, and if it does, it, it's going to be an ugly fight. But I, I don't see how it gets past three three rounds. I'm not even sure if it gets past two. Yeah, um, I don't think it's going to get past two as well. Uh, so there's some other points. There's some other bits from this weekend's event that kind of caught my eye. You know, Derek Brunson is fighting, but I've always had an interest in Ross Pearson. I don't know what it is about this guy, but when he gets out there, I always have had a interest in how well he competes. Talk to me about Derek Brunson and the Ross Pearson fight. What are some things that, that you're looking forward to with both of these guys? Well, the Derek Brunson fight, he's fighting Dan Kelly. Dan, what do they call him? Dad bod Kelly. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's a it's a must win for Brunson. I mean, he's he's lost he lost two in a row, and he lost them to guys who are very good at counterfighting. Um, Dan Kelly isn't isn't as dynamic as Robert Whitaker. He's not as his creative and elusive as as Anderson Silva, but as a guy who's been a multiple time Olympian, he's been judo his whole life. He's been in combat sports his whole life. He's got He's very mature. He's very seasoned. He's mentally tough. And even though he's not as technical as these other guys, he's actually a counter striker. A lot of his work comes off of pressuring guys, threatening with the clinch, and using that to land those awkward counter punches that, for some reason, seem to be laying out a lot of young middleweights. And Brunson hasn't shown that he can beat a guy who's willing to, who's willing to counter with him actively. He he hasn't shown that when he fought um when he when he fought Romero Romero is essentially a guy who counters with big explosive bursts of offense. That's how Romero stopped him when he fought Robert. Man, he had Romero beat. I'm still mad at that. Yeah, he he got he got lazy. He got overaggressive and he got countered and he got KO'd when he fought Robert Whitaker. It was a back and forth fight and every time he'd have Whitaker on the ropes instead of kind of showing some deliberate and some patience with his aggression, he just came all out and he got countered. And then he got kicked in the head and he got finished. And then when he fought Anderson Silva, he was so scared of being countered, he started being really careful, started being real methodical. The thing about it is he doesn't have the, a developed enough overall striking as far as his jab or his footwork where he can work that kind of methodical game. So he was too passive for fear of being countered. And then he lost, even though it was the disputed decision, he probably could have got it over Anderson. It never should have gotten to that point. A, a guy at his age fighting Anderson who, who really, that was Anderson's, 10 win in years and it's all because Brunson is so fearful of being countered and here he is this is what makes this a good matchmaking he's facing yet another guy who's seasoned got poise maturity and mental toughness who can counter him and if he if he comes out over aggressive or he doesn't manage his energy and his aggression the right manner he's going to lose again to a seasoned counter striker for Dan Kelly the reason it's good is because Dan Kelly hasn't faced a guy with top end athleticism he fought Sam Alvey and Sam Alvey stopped him. He was the youngest guy who had shown himself to be higher than a third or fourth tier fighter. He fought Rashad Evans, but Rashad Evans isn't the Rashad Evans we knew. He's, he, he, his, his physical abilities aren't there. And fighting Derek Brunson, that's the best athlete he's fought. It's the highest ranked fighter he's fought. And as far as being in their prime, it's the best fighter he's fought in his career. So we're, we're going to see if Dan 
is really has the savviness to really overcome a guy who's got experience, who's got some seasoning and got some set and got some experience on a world class level. We haven't seen that. And a guy who has all the tools, who can kick him up and down the body, who can wrestle with him, who can strike with him, who can kick his legs. It's going to be the first time we've seen Dan Kelly against that kind of guy. So for each guy, they're trying to prove that they can they can beat the challenge that they haven't beaten previously. Dan Kelly has never really beaten a guy of a certain caliber. Derek Brunson hasn't beaten anybody who's an effective, consistent counter striker. He, he just hasn't done it. And so these, I mean, very important by both guys. Think of where Derek Brunson would be if he didn't lose to Jacare, Anderson Silva, and Yoel Romero. Yeah. Every time he's gotten to a big fight, he's lost. Every time he's faced a guy who's got some sort of mental toughness and the ability to counter what he does, he has, he's lost. It, it, he's, and, and a loss to Dan Kelly is particularly damning because Dan Kelly, he didn't come in under big fanfare. Dan Kelly was just supposed to be another guy who got a couple fights in the UFC and got sent home, and he just keeps finding ways to win. And if he finds a way to win over Brunson, he's going to become a legitimate top 10 middleweight, and Brunson's going to really have to go back to the drawing board. Because I, I respect Dan Kelly. He's a good fighter. He, he's more right idea than right execution, but he's very smart. He's very savvy. But he shouldn't be beating a guy like Derrick Brunson. And Derrick Brunson shouldn't have been losing to a guy like Anderson Silva at this point in, in his career. He basically, basically made Anderson Silva into a legitimate middleweight once again. So Brunson needs to win this. I mean, if Kelly loses, it hurts him because he, he's not the legitimate title contender he wants to be. But nobody really thought of him as one before. If Brunson loses, we thought this guy could challenge for a title. We thought he'd be a top five elite middleweight for years to come. And in the width of about a year and a half, he'd gone from elite middleweight to a guy who's, bar- who's barely in the top 15. A loss of Dan Kelly has to knock him out of the top 15. And that's three losses in a row. Yeah. Three losses in a row to descending levels of fighters. Yeah, definitely should knock him out of that, that, that group. And, um,. With with uh, Ross Pearson, I've always been a Ross Pearson fan. A lot of boxing in his style, and I'm a huge boxing fan. And the fact that he's always taken fights. He's, if you look at his resume, there's just names of guys who might not have been the best fighters, but all the guys on his resume are guys who could fight. I don't really ever see him get soft touches. They always put him in tough, and I've always respected that about him. Only thing is, he's gotten to this point in his career where he hasn't been able to win fights. He, he's essentially a journeyman. He's going to tell you how good a guy is, what a guy can do, what a guy needs to work on, and if a guy is capable of being a lead or not. He's not really a guy who, who's considered a lead or even very good in the division anymore. He's just kind of, of a litmus test. And I, and I assume that he settled into this, this um, role that the UFC's had for him because he keeps on taking these fights, whether they're short notice or an opponent changes. And, and you look at the kind of guys he's been fighting, it's all these young, up-and-coming, sign guys they get who they're trying to established as legitimate threats in the division. So um, I'm always a huge Ross, Ross Pearson fan. I like watching the fight, but the age is catching up to him. He can't generate the volume, or, and he can't, he's not as aggressive. He kind of waits around a little bit too much, and he's gotten so dependent on his boxing. If you get him in the kicking range, a lot of what he does becomes ineffective, and he can't, he can't get into the ranges he wants because he can't get past that kicking range. His, his footwork, his defensive moves, and his counters aren't really built to handle kicks. You get him, you can main, you can keep him in kicking range. It'll op- even though he's a good boxer, it'll open up your punches because he's shown an inability to to be sound defensively against kicks or to counter them because his footwork 
just isn't developed enough to handle that that handle that range and navigate that range without either getting chopped up on the way in or getting pushed back out. So I really, I really don't see him fighting that much longer, and I assume he's just fighting because he wants to. Because it's clear that he's not going to be a contender. The UFC is not going to push him, and they're going to keep on putting him in the path of young guys who might have some potential to be to move up in the division. That's that's essentially his role, and I guess he's okay with that. So you don't see him fighting that much longer at all, huh? Uh, I mean, he, I mean, he's good enough. He, he's got enough. When you're a journeyman, you're good enough to not get beaten up and totally humiliated and really damaged. You're just not good enough to win anymore. So if he's okay with just competing and occasionally knocking off some some prospects or some guy who's on a streak, that's fine. But if he's trying to be a world class, like elite top five guy or world title challenger, uh, I don't I don't think that's been the case for the past three or four years. So if that's what he's fighting for, then there's no reason for him to fight because he's not going to be that at this stage of his life, his career. His 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 durability is not there. His ability, the work rate isn't there consistently. He's getting by on savvy mental toughness and the aware and the self-awareness that comes from fighting all levels of different fighters fighting them in all different continents fighting all different levels of athleticism technique and all different types of fighters there's very few things he hasn't seen so he knows how to protect himself and how to make, make himself competitive competitive with anybody he just can't win anymore he doesn't have the he never really had great athleticism he especially doesn't have it now and his durability isn't there either so he's getting by a lot on the little tricks and the little things that veterans do to to take advantage of fighters. If you think about it, then what? How would you characterize his career? Um, I've, like I said, I've always been a fan of his. I don't. I don't think he kind of reached the pinnacle of, of where he thought he would be. What, talk to me about his career. What do you? What are your? What are your thoughts on like the overall like um, view? Um, I don't. I think he's done better than. I, I know when I saw him. Even when he won the Ultimate Fighter, I never thought I thought he lacked a certain amount of athleticism. I thought he lacked a certain amount of power, explosiveness, uh, hand and foot speed. I thought he just lacked the things necessary for her, for him to be elite. But he's gone. He he competed well in two divisions. He's he's fought a who's he, he's fought a very high level of opponent. He's beaten a very high level opponent. He's done very well for himself, and he's probably done more than his physical tools. Say that he should have done, and he's done more than his overall technical too, because he's a fair, he's 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 got some experience, he's got some familiarity with the other aspects of MMA, but he's never been a great submission guy. He's never been a great offensive or defensive wrestling guy. He's never been a good offensive or defensive grappling guy, and he's never been a dynamic or even really effective kicker, kicker or knee and elbow type guy. He's really kind of been kind of a kick punch guy, but mostly a punch, uh, mostly a, a boxing based attack as a fighter. So he's, he's done a lot with fairly limited skills and fairly limited physical abilities. And that one thing I will commend him on is when he started hitting his wall earlier, he was willing to go to a different camp, work on different things, expand his skill base, and expand how he applied the skills he had to kind of, to kind of put himself on another run. So he's overachieved because, to be quite honest, I don't know anybody who really thought he was going to – Ross Pearson would still be fighting for the UFC at this point in his career. That's an accomplishment, accomplishment in and of itself. Especially coming from a country he had, where the wrestling, where the wrestling was so far behind the rest of the world, for him to come in and compete, and at one point be considered one of the better lightweights and one of the better featherweights in the division at some point, that that's a win in in and of itself. Now, 
it might not be the win he wants because it doesn't make him elite. Never made it. He never. I, in my opinion, he never had a chance to be a champion. But it shows that he was he was a he was a fighter's fighter, and he was a guy who always gave the company and their opponent their money's worth. No opponent ever came in there and fought Ross Pearson and didn't come out better for the experience, win or lose, because he's that kind of guy. He's professional. He's well prepared, and he gives everything he has at that moment to win. So he's he's. He's, he's essentially made anybody he's fought better. He's put on repeat, repeated high-octane, high-offense, skillful fights, and he's done whatever he can to, max, to get the most out of his physical ability and his technical ability. And that in and of itself is better than probably 90% of M- guys who, who journey into MMA. So uh, from that, my perspective, he's a winner. He's not elite. He's not going to be a Hall of Famer, but he's the kind of guy who, who, who every real fight fan is going to remember. Because he's the kind of guy who always performed and always performed very well. So that actually made me think of something. You know, I wrote a piece this week about Mark Hunt's legacy. I just actually finished writing a similar one for um, Sports Illustrated. What uh, What are your thoughts about Mark Hunt's legacy? What do you Where do you think he stands when it comes to heavyweight? In my opinion, you know, I think he's someone who's overachieved. I remember you know, think back to UFC Fight Night One Nineteen. I laughed at that fight, especially the Mark, uh, the Chris, the, the, excuse me, the, the loss to Sean McCorkle. I definitely laughed at that bout. I thought it was funny um, because, you know, this guy who he was coming in, I thought that he was going to take that fight and then be done with the UFC. But, hell, he turned it around to become such a fan favorite and to have such a large following that people almost talked the UFC into giving him a heavyweight title shot. So when you look back at Mark Hunt, especially his, his UFC run, what do you think of his legacy? Well, he actually got one when he fought Verdum. He just, he just lost to Verdum. Because they were going to fight for the UFC title fight, and then they, whoever won was going to fight Cain Velasquez to be the unified champion. So he actually worked his way up into a UFC title fight, which is pretty impressive in and of itself. Um, in, a cer- in a certain extent, Mark Hunt, like you said, he is an overachiever. He was a straight-up kickboxing guy who wasn't even one of the the most dynamic and technical and athletic kickboxers. He wasn't like a really truly legendary kickboxer. He was a very good guy who who won a major tournament and had beat some big names, but he wasn't one of the guys you considered an all-time great in kickboxing. And he transferred sports late in the game, and he was no no good at mixed martial arts. He was getting beat up by everybody. But he dedicated himself to the process, and he developed a style and a system based around his kickboxing where he was able to compete with – and even though heavyweight's very thin, he was able to compete with the very best guys in the world. And that, and like I said, when you're when you've shown that kind of perse- perseverance, and that kind of durability, and that kind of toughness, it can't help but make an impression on you. I think everybody's going to remember him as a fan favorite. They're going to remember him as one of the most dangerous fighters. Because even though with the lack of skill, Mark Hunt was one of the most dangerous fighters in, in heavyweight history, because he could turn your lights out with one shot. You didn't fight Mark Hunt and not experience some kind of change in your temperament or your physical being and that's the kind of damage and that's the kind of power he had he would he would he would apply to people but he he was never really a technical heavyweight he was never really an athletic heavyweight he was never the most well-rounded heavyweight he's more of a like an Achiro Gatti a fan favorite a guy with limited but good skills who had knockout ability and and came to fight and was going to put on the most exciting and punishing and awe-inspiring kind of fight you could see between two heavyweights. And, and that's what his legacy is going to be. He was an exciting, he was a very good 
but limited, exciting fighter. He was more of an action fighter, what they call him in boxing. And fans have a very good impression of those guys because they're so exciting and there's so many memories you attach to them. Walk-off knockouts in his case, huge back-and-forth swings of action. That kind of stuff sticks out to you. But when you really think about the actual skill set, both physical and technical, Mark Hunt, even now, even, even at his peak, was never anything special. And if he had been fighting in any division outside of heavyweight, I don't know that he would have ever gotten anywhere near a title shot. He just, he's just never been that, that technically good a fighter. But he's the kind of guy who evokes an emotion and, and, and has so many memories with fans that they're always going to remember him fondly. I think people will definitely re- remember him fondly. Um, for he was, he was. I don't want to say one of the most exciting heavyweights recently, but he was definitely someone that was going to go in there and get a knockout and get a big knockout. Um, and I think that that's that that's kind of important because that's kind of what the heavyweight division is is meant to be about, and it's also that's how it's a pro, that's how it's promoted. Exactly. He did what all the heavyweights are supposed to do. Either knock someone out or get knocked out. That's what, Nobody wants to see the panting five rounds in or heavyweight unloading the kitchen sink and not knocking somebody out. You, you don't come to heavyweight. You see, come to heavyweight to see guys get destroyed. And he either got destroyed or he destroyed other guys. And, and, and that's something the fans will really appreciate. They, they appreciate his style and the sacrifices he made in the cage more than you can appreciate his actual technical acumen. Because, I mean, I like Marhan, but let's face it, he wasn't really the cleanest technical striker. And he was, as far as a wrestler or grappler, he's getting proved, but he's still terrible. I mean, let's just call it, let's call it straight. He's still awful as a grappler and a wrestler. He's just gotten better, but that tells you, he, even right now, he's awful, and he's 10 times better than he was when he first started. That's how bad he was on the ground. So that, that should tell you something. And I still say that if it would have been any other division... He wouldn't have. He wouldn't get. He wouldn't have never gotten in position to fight for a title because even at heavyweight, you don't see too many actual elite names on his resume where there's a win next to it. Junior DeSantos, he lost by knockout. Verdum lost by knockout. When he fought the best guys, when he fought the name guys, Alistair Overeem, he got. He lost by knockout. When he fought the best of the best, he always came up short. He got submitted by uh, Fedor. You know, it just the list goes on and on. He just gets credit for taking those challenges, for reinventing himself, and for putting on good fights. But he doesn't get any credit for really achieving anything of an elite nature because he never did. Man, I'm not going to disagree with you there. I'm looking at his resume now. Let's see his. I mean, he didn't get Manhoff, too. So there's that. <laughs> his biggest win, I mean, his biggest wins are probably Frank Mir, Antonio Silva. I mean, he does have some good ones on here. Roy Nelson, you know, Steven Struve. I think that's a, that's a good one. Good one. Um, where, where are the great wins? Where are the guys mm-hmm. who, are, who are the best? He always beat a certain me... level of guy. Always a certain level. I mean, level. well, he, he... Oh, hold on a second. He knocked out Krokop. No, excuse me. He, he won a split over Krokop, split over Wanderlei. That's probably about it. Yep. I mean, I'm not saying he, I'm not saying he can fight, but when it comes to the, the, being great, you have to beat other greats and the greatest people in division. He didn't really beat them, and when he lost Man, to them, he lost decisively. I mean, he did fight everybody. You know, this dude fought Barnett, Fedor, Overeem a couple times. He fought Gegard Mousasi. I mean, he's fought everybody. Yeah, I mean, and you get credit for that. That's the kind of guy that fans respect 
But when you look closer at the actual skills and you look at who he beat and who he didn't, you get respect for fighting everybody. But you even get more respect for beating everybody. He fought everybody in a time when guys are looking to duck and avoid and, man- and, and manage their careers and, and manipulate the rankings. But he didn't beat everybody. And that's, that, so that kind of takes some of the shine off. It's like a guy who, who, who will fight anybody but can't win a fight. Backs down, but in a certain instance, you're like, but he never wins either. So it kind of takes some of the shine off of that. That's, that's, I, I can't disagree with you there. I, I definitely can't at all. Um, let's see what else do we have coming up. Is this the same weekend as the Bellator event? Mm, I don't think so. I don't think so. No. Um, I know we have a, a, a glory showcase coming up soon. That's actually this weekend that I will be working. No, the Bellator event is in two weeks, the weekend of the, of the um, 24th. Are there any other um, stories that kind of caught your eye this week? Anything else that, that stood out to you? Uh, some of the fallout from the, the, the most recent uh, UFC event, kind of the, the fallout as far as how it affected the divisions, kind of struck a nerve with me but as far as actual news stories there were the the dj thing took up so much there was so much conversation on that it was hard to even pay attention to anything else outside of that because that was such that was the biggest story no one had ever really challenged the ufc in the ring when they had something to lose and he was the first definitely the first champion i've ever seen do it so that that just took up so much energy that um outside of that that was the biggest news story that i think i focused on outside of actual fight results, most recent fight results. Yeah, I'm not, I, I agree with you. What did you think of um, Aldo getting finished? Well, it's like, it's like we talked about last week. This loss is, is more damaging than the Conor McGregor loss. You could spin that loss. It was a 13 second. He hit me with one shot. I fought, I fought out of character. But um, as many, and as many people have said in hindsight in this fight, he, he fought a good fight. He had his moments. He landed the shots he wanted to land on Holloway. He put the power on him that he wanted to put on him because, and those are the shots that usually finish guys, but it didn't finish Holloway. And Holloway made an adjustment and Holloway broke him down and then Holloway finished him. And there's no way that Jose Aldo can spin this because Jose, Jose Aldo got, he got, out te- he got out strategized, he got outworked and he got beaten up. And it was over a three round, two and a half, three round period. It wasn't a flash knockout, and it wasn't fighting a guy who's the type of guy. The minute he touches you, he blows, he blows your doors off. He literally got outfought, and that's going to be something that's going to stick in his um, stick in his legacy moving forward. And and for the second time, he's faced a guy who can actually strike with him, and he has lost. All the guys he fought before were wrestlers with good striking. Frank Yeager. Chad Mendez, I mean, I guess Cub Swanson, he's got, right now, Cub Swanson is known as this dynamic striker. He wasn't always that guy when he officially came out. Uriah Faber was a wrestler who could strike, um, and just many other people. The two best strikers he faced, the guys who had layers of their striking game, who had, who had physical, mental toughness, and the ability to make adjustments and to make him work, are the only two guys to beat him and to beat him decisively. And that's going to be something else that people remember when they think about Jose Aldo from this point moving on. He beat up a bunch of, basically a bunch of wrestle boxers. And the first time he got in with legitimate strikers, he got finished in both instances. And you can't, you can't spin that either. As much as I'm a Jose Aldo fan, the fact is when he faced the best strikers, he got defeated and he got defeated handily. And there's no way around that. 
Yeah, he really did. He definitely did. Um, Claudia Gadelia, did she tell us anything different about herself with her win? Well, I don't. The thing is, Claudia is she's clearly the number two, and um, I kind of knew what she was gonna do because I I talked to her camp, and they kind of they kind of ran what they were trying to do with Carolina, and by me and one one of my feedback on it. And the biggest thing with Carolina is Carolina got a lot of credit for going five rounds with Joanna and essentially getting beat up for five rounds and landing one shot. The fact of the matter is Carolina's whole success is, is based on you fighting dumb. You kind of getting dragged into a fight with her, you trying to avoid certain areas with her, and then in trying to avoid those areas, you, you allow her success in other areas. People try to avoid the clinch, so as a result of avoiding the clinch, they're constantly giving up ground and letting her getting an opportunity to get her momentum going with all her volume and everything. And we talked about this last week. Claudia initiated clinches. She started beating her up on clinches. Every time she started trying to get her off her offense going, Claudia would strike with her, whether she landed or not. Or put four, five, six shots together because there was always two or three shots coming right back at her. And so as they got into extended exchanges, instead of staying on her toes and kind of bouncing around and coming in with huge offense, she started set, she started settling down and trying to throw heat with Claudia. Once she did that, Claudia got tied her up took her down, and finished her. But we've already known Claudia is one of the best ground fighters in division. We know that she's already one of the best athletes. We know that she's one of the best counter punchers. The only thing we didn't know was whether she could fight a disciplined fight because when she fought Joanna the second time, she fought just a really, really dumb fight. She didn't show any of the skills she showed in this fight or the fight with Casey or the, fight, the first fight with Joanna. She just came in swinging hard and trying for takedowns and wore herself out and, and then got beat by decision. He, how she would be against an opponent who wasn't going to be dissuaded, opponent who could take her power, an opponent who was going to keep on pressuring her. Would she be able? Would she come out and fight smart and play to her strengths, or would she come out there and try to to put on a show, scare off where to power, or just run in blindly with takedowns and exhaust herself, and then put her herself in a position where Carolina could take over later in the fight? She didn't. She fought very smart. She fought very disciplined. And as we thought before, she's still the second best girl in the division. We still don't know if she can beat Joanna. I think she can if she plays her cards right. But we, we still don't know if she can beat Joanna. But we don't know that anybody else in the division can beat her. So it's kind of like just a reaffirmation that she's the second best girl in the division. And anybody who, who really wants to have a shot with Joanna is going to have to be able to beat her to prove that they're on that level. Yeah, um... I definitely wonder if she can find a way to defeat JJ. And if JJ goes up the flyweight, the women's flyweight division, um, will Claudelia basically be the de facto champion um, if she can find a way to get back into the title picture? That'll be the plan. I, I think they said it before. She wants to work on working her way back to the title. And I think that's smart because so many fighters want to jump right back into the title fight. Anthony Pettis. Chris Weidman, and instead of spending the necessary time to not just learn, because, you know, once again, everybody who doesn't know, you train, you've helped train fighters. Even if somebody shows you a new technique and you kind of get it down, it takes you a while before it becomes second nature where you don't panic and go back to your old ways. For you to really be able to use it effectively in a fight, most people have to really work on something, really develop a game plan, really refine a game plan before they can pull it off. Most of these people, they work on new things and think in three months they're going to have it down. And only the best of the best, the smartest of the smartest fighters can do that. For you to really have a change in your character and how you approach fights, 
you have to do it over an extended period. You have to slowly rebuild your game or refine your game in key areas. That's what she wants to do. She wants to make sure that when she fights Joanna the next time, if she has to, that she can handle any circumstance and any situation Joanna puts her in. Because she already knows that on her base level, even fighting as dumb as she was fighting, she was still competitive with her. She was still in that fight all the way down to the fifth round. So now it's a matter of cleaning up mistakes, um, having offensive, offensive encounter techniques that are a little bit more diverse and razor sharp, and being able to attack Joanna on, mental, on multiple levels, not just keying in on one thing and running yourself ragged attempting it. So she's, to me, she's doing the right thing. She's doing what Anthony Pettis should have done. She's doing what Chris Weidman should have done. She's doing what lots of fighters should do. Take time back, work your way back up, and slowly start using these new skills, different calibers of fighters and different types of fighters, so that by the time you get to that title fight, three or four fights later, a year later, you've covered all the bases. You, you prepared yourself as best you can. Instead of thinking, oh, I just need to fix this one thing, let me jump back in there. Because again, she's doing it the smart way. She's looking at the long the long the long the big the long term picture not the short term picture and i think that's eventually going to lead her to a title another title shot i don't know that it'll be against joanna because i've heard rumors about her wanting to move up for years so i i think in another year or so if claudia gets it joanna might not be in division to defend it she might move up to uh strut with a flyweight I, I think that's a very distinct possibility <laughs> Uh, yeah, I definitely can see that happening. Um, so let's talk. What do you have for the rest of the week? What are you working on? Um, I know you finished up the Wonder Woman. You finished finished up your Wonder Woman arc. That stuff was great, as I mentioned uh, last week. But what are some other things that you're working on for MMA ratings? Um, I'm I'm kind of trying to to knock out stuff a little bit in advance. I know I I did a an article on Dan Kelly and Derek Brunson. Um, I did that, and then they got some, they got some some women some women's mixed martial art fights that are coming up that I'm going to be diving into. Um, Felice Herrig, Justine Kish, and then um, on the and I actually have two fights on the same card that I want to look into: the Lena Landsberg, Leslie Smith fight coming up later on, and the JoJo Calderwood, Cynthia Cavillo fight. And when I'm doing breakdowns on fights now, I'm really trying to explain to the fans kind of makes sense of the matchmaking a little bit, because sometimes you see fights, and they're good fights as far as the action, but when you see the fight, you kind of wonder. So now I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to look at matchups and explain why this is a good matchup or why this is a bad matchup. It might be a good matchup as far as a fight for us, but as far as the fighters being involved, some of these fights don't make sense, and I'm trying to educate the fans a little bit more on fighters don't take certain fights, why certain fighters take certain fights. It's not just as simple as, I'm a warrior, I'm a soldier, I'm a gladiator. That, all this stuff sounds good. What they are is professional sportsmen and sportswomen trying to improve their career to get to the point where they can make money, leave a legacy, and have the acclaim that comes with being one of the best, if not the best. And certain moves that organizations make either hinder that or they help that. And I want fans to kind of have a better understanding of that. So maybe next time, and fight, they, they start getting on the fighter side and demanding fights that will help that fighter instead of jumping in on the side of the organization and being like, oh, you should just take whatever they give you. That doesn't really help a guy who's on a, a four-fight winning streak fighting a guy who's on a two-fight losing streak. What does that do for him? Yeah, it's a great fight for you, but what does it do for him? I'm trying to kind of expand the argument a little bit, not just talking about the technique of the fight and the strategy, but the technique and the strategy that goes into the quality matchmaking that actually benefits fighters. 
Yeah, it's very interesting the way that fighters... I think fighters want to show that they're company men by turning on some of their peers, but in reality, it doesn't help them and doesn't help the situation at all. Well, Dana White said it best. He, he's, it's, a, it's a solo sport, and nobody cares. Nobody cares until they're inconvenienced. Jose Aldo did not care about the UFC take, taking advantage of people until the UFC started taking advantage of him. Conor McGregor didn't give damn about the, the UFC's, how they treated people, until he started getting treated badly. People have been getting treated badly. I'm sure people Demetrius Johnson is friends with have been treated badly by the UFC. So they started trying to bully him. They bullied lots of other fighters. They've intimidated lots of other fighters. But he didn't speak up because it didn't affect him. In that case, they're like a lot of people here. We'll be so concerned about some celebrity who beats his wife. We know somebody two doors down from us who beats his wife, and we don't say anything. Because we don't really care. It's like a fake kind of outrage. Nobody cares until it impacts them. And that's the advantage the organization has over all of them because the organization and the people funding it, they're on the same side. The fighters aren't on the same side. You have how, how many hundreds of fighters? They're all on their own side. If your name isn't Leslie Smith, you're all on your own side. Everybody will cheer for her and say, oh, she's doing a great thing. She's doing a brave thing. I don't see you putting your neck out on the line with her, making controversial statements and talking about making a union. They only say that when they're not getting their way. As soon as things start going their way, they, get, they sign a new contract, the UFC gets, the machine gets behind them, everybody gets quiet. Everybody gets really hush-hush. The organization always has. Their goal is to make money and make their organization bigger. The fighter's goal is to make themselves bigger. And you being, if we're both fighters, me becoming bigger doesn't help you. You become bigger doesn't help me. Only thing that helps each of us is for our own individual success. So it doesn't give you any reason to support anybody else because that doesn't help you. It doesn't do anything for you. And you don't want to, they don't want to help anybody else. They want to help themselves. I mean, listen, Angela Hills made comments out on Twitter. Everybody's made comments on Twitter. They know friends who are getting done wrong by the UFC, but they won't speak out mm-hmm. because they're, they're, they're benefiting. And I'm not saying they're wrong for it. That's what almost everybody does. Everybody will say, make this stand. Oh, hire a female director. Why don't you give up your directing job so you can hire a female director? Or hire a black guy. Give up your job so that a black guy can be hired. It's easy to say, do the right thing, and they need to do this and do that, but nobody wants to sacrifice their spot or sacrifice their career. And that's why the fighters are always going to be on the losing end of this until they all decide that making a change that's not going to benefit them, that's going to benefit the next generation or someone else is more important than them getting a title shot or them getting an extra $5,000 on their paycheck. Because people and and most fighters are fairly self-absorbed. Basically, pretty much. Um, I got a couple other pieces that I'm working on as well. I'm waiting on some stuff back from Michael, but I have some work. You know, it, it, we're always doing our thing over at MMARatings.net. You can definitely catch us there. You can follow us on Twitter and follow us on Instagram. So um, be sure to catch all of our work and come back to check us out next week. We will be back Thursday to talk all things MMA once again. I had one more thing I wanted to say because I, I actually had a couple people uh, e- e- message me on Twitter about this. First of all, and it, I'll, make, I'll try to make this short. The reason I always give credit when I hear something from another mention, a friend of the show, or somebody I've talked to on Twitter, it's not because I don't know things or I don't see things, but the best way to learn is to always be open to learning and seeing different people's perspective. It helps, it, it helps reshape and either strengthen or weaken your perspective, and we all need that to get better. Just being around people who agree with me, even Rafael doesn't agree with me all the time. 
I like that because it forces me to think. It forces me to open my mouth because I know he'll say something different. I know I can't just go off on a tangent about fighting because he's actually fought. He's helped train fighters. He trains himself. So I can't just say whatever I want because if I'm saying nonsense, he'll call me on it. And if somebody else I know from another podcast makes a good point, you hear. So I don't mind giving them credit. I want everybody to win it to, to, to the maximum amount they can. So I don't mind giving somebody else some shine because other people have given us shine on their shows, on their pages. That's the first thing. And second of all, on this show, we don't have a problem having female guests. We would like to have some. I've reached out to some. I know Raphael's been trying to do that on his end as well. But so far, we haven't had any luck with them coming on. But it's not because we're against having women fighters on or women coaches. I've actually contacted female fighters, female coaches, females who, who work in the industry, you know, either due to time constraints or maybe other things they have going on. It hasn't happened. But where we don't want them on the show or we don't want to explore that aspect of mixed martial arts. We appreciate all the men and women who contribute to the sport on any level. And we want to give them all an opportunity to speak, tell their story, tell their thoughts about the mixed martial arts and how to get it to the next level. And me, myself, I cover a lot of, I cover more, I break down more female fights than almost anybody else. You can check it. I break down a lot of female fights, not just the big ones, the small ones on the prelims and on the fight pass cards and in other organizations. So I'm all about that. But if you want to see more female fighters on the show or female coaches on the show, the female fighters you, you interact with on Twitter or interact with on social media, tell them, hey, MMA rating show, would love to have you. But we're doing our best to get the best people we want who can make it on the show. Open to anybody and everybody who has something to, to contribute on the benefit for the fans. And I just want to make sure you all know that we're doing our best to get all sorts of people on the show, every type of gender, type of fighter, big, small, top athlete, mid-carder. We're trying to do it all just for you guys. We're not excluding anybody. But if you want to see more of that on the show, you need to talk to the people who you follow and who follow you about that. And if you get them to make the time for us, we'll bring them on for your benefit. Definitely, definitely true. So, um, again, man, always thanks for having you here. And we will be back uh, next week with another edition of the show. Just be sure to catch us out here, like our show, um, share our content across your um, channels. And as always, you know, this is Raphael Garcia and this is Swan Humes closing out for another a great edition of the MMA Ratings Podcast. Good night, guys. Have a good night.